Sholem Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Judah Cohen, Associate Professor of Musicology in the Jacobs School of Music and the Lou and Sybil Maris Professor of Jewish Culture at Indiana University. Judah's training is a musicologist and an anthropologist, and his professional activity within Jewish cultural studies has allowed him to explore many aspects of Jewish culture and history. His research has focused on the idea of Jewish cultural expression as a dynamic and ever-changing process, created and recreated over time by artists, religious leaders, philosophers, and activists. Judah explores this idea largely through the prism of sound and its relationship to ideas of Jewish identity. Welcome, Judah. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to be here, Lisa. Um, lovely to have a chance to visit with you. You've got uh, you do very interesting work, um, and it seems to draw on both your studies and interest in musicology, Jewish studies, and as I mentioned, the sort of larger aspect of Jewish culture and history. And I wonder if we could kind of go back and what drew you to all of this and how did it all come together? That's a great question. I grew up in a conservative Jewish household in New Jersey as part of a family that was really quite active in both uh, Jewish education as well as general education, uh, interested in music and interested in the arts. Uh, and within that family, I became really quite interested not just in what it meant to express Jewish identity, but also to see the numerous different ways and, and the wide variety of Jewish experiences that uh, people had, even in my own family. Uh, my mother came from a family that had uh, numerous siblings. Those siblings, by the time I had really come into consciousness, uh, looked at Judaism in, in many different ways. And in fact, I could say uh, really ranged from uh, what would, one would consider sort of black hat orthodox all the way through uh, a sense of a kind of a changing sense of identity uh, through conversion to Catholicism and also, uh, in one case, uh, Messianic Judaism. So for me, learning about the ways that people express themselves was as much a part of understanding my own family as it was uh, a personal, uh, something of personal interest uh, to me. Uh, at that point, I uh, started to take piano lessons, and I became uh, more of a musician, uh, also interested in creative writing and the arts when I was in high school. Uh, and uh, over the course of time, found out that there was actually a kind of a field that I could get into. Uh, so in college, I uh, helped to start an a cappella singing group that was associated with uh, Jewish and Israeli music and started to learn a lot more on the topic as a result of that, and then uh, started to go into this field called ethnomusicology that allowed me to take that interest, that knowledge that I had, and really just go as deep as I wanted to. Uh, that was uh, a time when uh, it really began to seem like there was a career uh, ahead of me, and I decided to pursue it. And I guess exploring ethnography um, with the lens on music, what window does that give you into our understanding of sort of Jewish cultural expression or Jewish cultural identity? It's a great question. I look at Judaism in a way that is uh, something created by people. Part of the thing that I had experienced growing up was this focus on what people describe as tradition, Jewish tradition, a way to pass down Judaism, uh, something that seemingly came from a past that was very hard to specifically define, but somehow was very old. And people held on to that very strongly. As I was studying 
music, and sometimes this term is Jewish music, and studying the different kinds of music uh, that people did in the context of Judaism, I began to realize that what people chose to do and what people called religion was in fact a lot more fragile than I had expected. Uh, music that people described as Jewish music, perhaps the music of the klezmorum or klezmer music or cantorial music, uh, was described as being hundreds if not thousands of years old, but yet the more you looked at it and the more detail you started to add to the history and so on, the more it seemed like the changes that we looked at here were as much a representation of the present day as much as they were a historical uh, representation, a mm -hmm. way perhaps for people today to imagine what the past was in order to give Judaism and to give a sense of Jewish identity depth and meaning to them as they moved forward. So for me, the ability to look into ethnography, to look and see how people do things today, to me provides an interesting and I would say invaluable mirror onto the past, assuming that people in the past also did the same thing. And, and do you, I mean, you allude to this in your writing, um, the idea of sort of this cultural transmission, if we may call it that, and how it evolves and it gets borrowed and reinterpreted, you know, from artists, musicians, uh, philosophers. I mean, I see this play out in a lot of aspects of Jewish culture. Yes. And again, how do you, what's the takeaway um, in terms of understanding what those roots are and the evolution? And is that prior of sort of the process that we should see is ongoing. To me, the key takeaway here is to recognize that when people invoke tradition, they do it for uh, many different reasons. Some of the reasons would include wanting to be able to feel like they have a community, that they can identify a group of people that will agree upon what Judaism is so that they can then, again, act uh, in the present. Other reasons, though, that people, uh, or other things that to me became uh, really interesting were to look at places where there were conflicts. That is, when people ask the question, what is Jewish tradition, and you have different polities, different groups of people coming up with different answers, and why those different answers come about. In one sense, we could look at today as an ability to, or as an opportunity for people to take the pieces of the past that they see as most important to their identity and then put them together into some kind of a cohesive whole. But what if you have two different groups of people that feel differently, that take different pieces of the past and call them both Jewish identity? One of the things that to me was uh, really central to some of my earlier research was that there were one group of people that saw themselves as cantors, that saw themselves as part of a, let's say, 2,000-year-old history of Jewish music that had a particular sound to it, that used particular kinds of modal qualities, uh, vocal qualities, that saw the music that they were uh, presenting as music that represented the soul of the Jewish people. And yet, at the same time, within similar circles, you had a group of people that described themselves as song leaders. These were people that used guitars, that tended to use uh, ideas of group singing, that tended to use uh, musical styles that might be considered more folk music styles as a way also to identify with a deep sense of Jewish identity, but to do so in a, using a very different sound. And each of these different groups looked at the other one with a a certain amount of suspicion 
as if to say that the other group just didn't get that this was the way to be able to present Judaism in its most meaningful form uh, today. Now, this, uh, you know, looking at these two groups of people, there were some really interesting crossovers and some really interesting differences. For example, one way to look at it would be to see this as a difference between those who see music as the central part of Jewish identity and those that saw communal uh, activity as a central part of Jewish identity. You could look at these two different groups as representing perhaps uh, those that are adults and those that tend to focus on youth culture and to recognize that those two groups, perhaps, and especially when you're talking about a transition from one generation to the next, you will always find that there's a group of adults and a group of young people that somehow don't agree with each other and intentionally don't agree with each other so each can establish their own uh, meaningful sense of identity. So there's that that goes into it. And then there are ideas about new movements. So uh, going back into the 19th century, there were on a regular basis different kinds of religious leaders that would redefine what Judaism was through a combination of liturgy, through music, through different kinds of educational materials, and all of those things combined to try and open up a new idea of what Judaism was, while at the same time trying to claim, as all of these groups do, that what they're doing is not changing Judaism, but rather they are perhaps either enhancing or deepening Judaism so that it has uh, a greater relevance to today's populations. And you're talking both about the sort of secular as well as the religious aspects of the music? I would say so, yes. Uh, that when we talk about music, music itself is just sound. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really have an inherent meaning to it. The thing that's important is what happens once that sound is produced, the intention associated with that sound, or the interpretation of that sound once people hear it. And those, that's what makes music in some ways so powerful, since music itself then gets brought into the different narratives and the different ideas that people have, the religious ideas that people have, the, um, if you will, the cultural ideas that people have, if in fact you can separate them from each other, uh, the use of different kinds of music in different kinds of forms, um, whether inside the synagogue or outside of the synagogue, those all become, uh, to me, the rich areas that music can provide. And music does this without necessarily requiring a kind of an intellectual, mm -hmm. uh, deep intellectual base, but rather has a great immediacy from which an intellectual idea or a series of different ideas can be generated. Well, I, I think when I was considering all that you're talking about and have written about, for me, music has very deep emotional roots. It, 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 it prompts and evokes reactions, and they may not immediately be cerebral, but again, they're very deeply rooted somewhere. And it's interesting to talk about this in terms of what is that relationship between music and tradition? something that to me serves as the center of, of a lot of what I do, because people will certainly be deeply, uh, will be deeply emotionally affected by the music that they hear. And it brings up larger questions as to what that means. My research is not meant to uh, do anything more than to understand where that feeling comes from and to get a deeper sense as to how that feeling uh, came about. So if someone, for example, listens to, let's say, 
uh, klezmer music or listens to Yiddish popular song or uh, gets involved in Yiddish theater or something to that effect, and they hold on to it very deeply. What does that mean? How did that, in fact, come into effect? And part of what's interesting here is to recognize that when we talk about tradition, tradition itself is not very old, usually, when we deal with particular musical traditions. In fact, the very idea of what we mean when we talk about klezmer changes depending upon whether we're looking at klezmer of the 1970s or we're looking at klezmorum or Jewish wedding musicians in the 19th and early 20th century or uh, looking back at what we might call Jewish uh, musical experiences from earlier on. What's interesting is to see how communities then converge around particular kinds of sounds and use those as a way to say, this is what is so important to us. The sound then combines with a past and then combines also with what a community does to try and keep itself together. And then to watch and see how people will incorporate sound into that idea of tradition that they then hold on to, that they then see as extremely important for maintaining this idea of Jewish identity into the future. Do you think there's um, something that makes music distinctly Jewish? I mean, that may seem like a very silly question, but again, going sort of deeper into it, the, the what's that thread and, and how do we relate to that sound as being distinctly Jewish? What I would do is I would turn that question around okay. and say, or how do people find sound that links to their deepest sense of being distinctly Jewish. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I say that is because looking back historically, it's extremely difficult to be able to find, uh, let's say, some kind of a Jewish musical thread, uh, if you wanted to call it that. And similarly, once you expand your outlook and look at, let's say, all those people who identify as Jewish, uh, and to see the music that they see as central to their identity, what you see is an extremely wide range, and one that perhaps uh, suggests that everybody is relating to some kind of a deep tradition, but the sounds that they use differ from one community to the next, whether it's a Syrian community, a Yemenite community, uh, an Ashkenazi community, a uh, Sephardi community. You know, each one of these uh, groups will use different sounds as the centerpiece of it. And again, historically, when you're going back to it, we really don't have very good records uh, going past, let's say, uh, pretty much the mid-18th century. At that point, even at that point, we've got very, very sketchy records of what music sounded like. So we really have no way of confirming or uh, denying a particular sound. What that means then is that people then can start to define what Jewish music is without being burdened by 1,600 years of history mm -hmm. that they need to relate to. And in some ways, that kind of frees the idea of what is Jewish music to help people reflect upon their own lives as to the sound that will then serve as the basis for, in this particular case, a Jewish identity. We can also look at it in other ways. For example, uh, trying to recognize that perhaps Jewish identity or claiming that there is a Jewish music often works best when it's situated alongside non-Jewish musics or musics that are seen as outside of the Jewish realm. 
And so in one sense, one of the ways that people define Jewish music is within a kind of a modern heterogeneous society. Here are different communities, each of which are trying to put together their own idea of music. Here is American music, Italian music, Puerto Rican music, Chinese music, and so on and so forth. And Jews need to have a music that is able to sit alongside all of those. So thus a need for definition, but a need for definition as part of this much larger uh, world. It's a fascinating topic. Um, and I, along the way, um, in, and I'm sure that this is ongoing study for you, obviously, sure. um, it, has there been, you know, any one sort of pivotal incident uh, in your exploration? I would say that Part of the fun of what I do is to try to find those or to have those pivotal moments serve as the basis for long-term uh, research projects. So yes, um, among the things that really were particularly striking to me, for example, uh, I did a lot of work with cantorial students at Hebrew Union College between about uh, 1999 and 2003-2004, which is what led to uh, one of uh, which is what led to uh, the book, um, uh, which is what led to my book on the Cantorate, the American Cantorate. Um, what happened to me over there is that I sat in on classes along with all of these cantorial students and learned cantorial history alongside these cantorial students and also learned uh, Jewish history and Jewish music history alongside uh, and with these cantorial students. But at the same time, I was trying to do some historical research. Uh, and I started to look back. One of the things that served as a kind of a centerpiece for defining Jewish music in the cantorial world was these series of what are described as synagogue modes or Jewish musical modes. That is, uh, on a simple basis, a series of scales and a series of kind of musical uh, phrases that might define particular emotions that are seen as part of, let's say, a religious service that help to create the landscape of sound that's associated with uh, the music of uh, the religious ritual. And I started to go back and wonder to myself, what's the history of these kinds of sounds, of these kinds of musical modes? Because as I had learned, they were hundreds of years old. They may have come from the Middle Ages or something like that. Uh, at one point, I actually came across a little booklet that was in the Hebrew Union College Library, and it was a booklet that, again, was one of those moments of change for me. It was from 1886, and the book itself essentially created the definition of these synagogue modes to say that, in fact, these modes may not be hundreds of years old, but rather they were from a particular moment, 1886, a time when Jews were trying to come up with modes that could coexist with other church modes for example, since the church modes themselves, the Catholic church modes, were themselves being redefined in the 1870s. What was really interesting, though, at that point was uh, seeing how that was done. And in a sense, the uh, scholar and cantor that, was, that wrote this book, whose name was Josef Singer um, in Vienna, essentially said, not I am making a change and establishing these new modes, but instead saying, I'm looking back at history, and I as a cantor will know musical history. And what these three modes do is it allows us to purify or to be able to create a theory for everything that came before. Now, whether or not what came before accurately is portrayed in these modes is a different story entirely. What it does is it takes 
a, a history and consolidates it at a really important moment so that then cantors and others can use these modes as centerpieces of what they do in the future, as kind of prescriptive modes of Jewish identity. And so for me, trying, uh, seeing that moment opened up a whole different world, which is to say that periodically people will redefine sound, they'll redefine imagery, they'll redefine uh, ritual in order to say this is the place where everything has been leading up to, and I am going to purify that, or I am going to redefine that and say this is now our core of understanding. And looking at it at that point, suddenly it became clear to me that the way people tell history looking backwards is, of course, different from the way that people tell history moving forwards. And so at that point, trying to find that balance between making sure to respect what people believe today and also understanding how those beliefs came about became a central part of my research. Wow. And before I let you leave, um, quickly, what are you working on now? Now I'm working on three different projects, each one of which looks at what I've been talking about in a very different way. So one project, I'm attempting to finish up this book right now, looks at 19th century American synagogue music. It starts with the uh, with largely the assumption that when we look at synagogue music, that for the most part, the most exciting stuff that was happening, at least the way it works in scholarship these days, uh, was in Central Europe with the emergence of reform and uh, cantor composers such as Solomon Zulzer or uh, choir directors such as Louis Lewandowski. What I tried to do is instead of going back into Europe, instead staying in the United States to see what's going on in the U.S. in the middle of the 19th century and finding, in fact, that there is a lot of material that has largely been overlooked and, again, largely been forgotten because of uh, the narratives that have emerged since the 1920s and 30s that look at Eastern Europe as the center of authenticity. That's one project I'm looking at. Second project I'm looking at is a musical theater project. And again, looking back and saying that today we often look at musical theater as a form of light entertainment, and so one that can't handle uh, very heavy narratives and heavy history. This is, again, a uh, construction that is based on looking, uh, that's based on the present rather than what actually exists in the past. And instead trying to say, all right, let's look at one of the key moments of uh, Jew world Jewish history, in this case trying to understand the rise of Nazi Germany, and to see uh, musical theater as a way to reflect these, uh, the issues that were going on and to reflect the nature of uh, American Jewish and world Jewish memory uh, associated with this tragedy uh, of the Holocaust. And it goes back through the 1920s and 30s, in fact, in terms of dealing with questions of European anti-Semitism in the context of uh, musical uh, performances, some of which were extremely political. That's a second project. The third project that I'm looking at emerges from uh, a more recent uh, situation. In this case, I'm trying to write a biography of Debbie Friedman, again, someone who is extremely important to American synagogue music, but who often has been treated uh, in a way that's very different from her actual life. Uh, someone who is often treated today as associated with youth movements, for example, and with summer camps, when in fact she started her career as a serious 
serious composer, someone who was is often perceived as an outsider to the uh, institutionalized modes of American Jewish life, when in fact she was an insider and commissioned by major synagogues to write the pieces that today we often hear in uh, summer camp modes. So for me, trying to understand her as in many ways a reflection of what it means to be a young woman in the 1970s and into the 80s and trying to make it in the uh, musical world and also in the Jewish liturgical music world, uh, to me, is a very important story that needs to be told uh, in a different way than what we know today. It's fascinating work. Um, I can imagine that you don't listen quite the same as the rest of us listen every day. Oh. <laughs> and um, again, quickly, um, yeah. is there somewhere where our listeners can find their way to your work? Sure. Well, just go on Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a couple of books. The Making of a Reformed Jewish Cantor uh, is my book on what it means to become a cantor in the, at the turn of the 21st century. Um, I also uh, will be putting out a book that I hope is called Restoring the Soundtrack, uh, associated with the 19th century sometime in uh, the, uh, I assume sometime in probably 2018 uh, or thereabouts. And I have another book that I haven't really talked about, which is called Through the Sands of Time, which again looks at Jewish history in a different way. In this case, uh, through the eyes of uh, the Jewish populations of St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which seems marginal today, but actually is central to understanding the way that American Judaism not only grew, but also started to think about its relationships to uh, between East and West. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a, a pathway. Yes. Um, well, again, thank you so much. Um, I hope you'll be back on the schmooze sometime to talk about your next projects. Um, and uh, keep up the work. It's fascinating. Thanks again. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, yeah. Lisa. Take Enjoy care. the year. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.